I'm Jean McNeil. I'm here on a very hot train on August 2nd from Norwich to Great Yarmouth with Mark Cocker, eminent nature writer and actual Norfolk resident, not Norfolk native. I nearly said Norfolk native, but you would have corrected me very quickly. We were commenting how, how strange it is this summer. It's been a long, hot summer and it looks set to continue. One of the interesting things for me is um, how the natural environments or the sort of non-human environments, all the fields look incredibly roasted. But actually the broads pretty much, if you look out the window now, at these natural um, ecosystems, they pretty much weathered this extreme of weather very effectively. I mean, my little patch of marsh is very close to here. And, um, is it all right? Oh, God. I mean, everyone's saying, you know, is it coping? Has it dried out? Yeah. I mean, you'd have to see it. It's, I mean, I can't get into it because it's so prolific. It's just the fen vegetation is it's seven feet tall. Yeah. But I mean, you know, we're seeing bits of... I mean, it's wherever we cut and interfere in the vegetation that we're seeing it all desiccated and dried up. And, um, you know, really nature copes very well with these extremes of temperature. Yeah, as you say, there is a certain resilience. But I do mm. wonder and worry about the smaller creatures, you know. Absolutely, well. The coots, the moorhens, yeah, you know, yeah. creatures that are amphibious or yeah. water dependent. Yeah, well, I think it's been a mixture. I mean, butterflies have clearly done very well. And, um, I think a lot of the vegetation, the flowers are not fantastic, but I mean, I think things like ev anything that's insectivorous, you know, swallows and house martins and swifts and things have mm. all done very well. And mm -hmm. um, butterflies seem to be in abundance. Vegetation's had a hard time. Mm. But you know, some of this stuff is so resilient, it's extraordinary. And as you say, the fields look um, actually quite prolific. Mm. And then yeah, certain yeah. Down areas which are not farmed or yeah. not in use, they are, or not close to water, they are the parched areas. Yeah. I also have the strange, maybe it's just my own kind of internal projection, but a sense of certain creatures having abandoned Britain, as in we're out of here, this is not right, this is not for us, particularly the birds, as you say, the dawn course is over, but then that seasonal, it's high summer, birds mm. go mm. pretty silent generally, don't they? Well, they do. I mean, one of the interesting things about for a naturalist is that um, this time that we think of, and, as, and particularly from our childhoods, as, as absolutely the heart of summer, the time when you recreate and you take it easy and you have holidays etc. Mm. It's actually a pretty dead time for wildlife. Mm. I mean most birds now are molting so they're very inactive. Mm -hmm. um, all, everything's stopped breeding because the breeding season is over. Mm. Song as we, as we say is finished. So it's actually quite a quiet landscape mm. and then we overlay it with this heat and um, it feels very enervated and, and, and worn out. It reminds me of L.P. Barclay, who's another mm. Norfolk writer mm -hmm. and wrote very memorably in um, The Go-Between go of, 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 of baking hot Norfolk weather and the kind of emptiness which it sort of instilled. And Yes, it's true. There is that flip side to the kind of more stereotypical character of Norfolk mm, and mm. the fens, such as Waterland, mm. for example. So I reread Waterland recently, Graham oh, Swift's okay. novel. Right. And um, some of the reviews of it, almost everybody makes mention of the kind of squidgy language, mm. lots of sort of aqueous, mm. amphibious mm. language, a mm. bit like what you use, actually, mm. in, um, in our place, when you start out in your own... In the fen. In the, yes, mm -hmm. in your own piece of ground, which, as yeah. you say, is just, just, just close a couple to of kilometres. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that very, very particular language of bracken and mm. um, wetness. Do, do you associate, I mean, the interesting thing is that the fence has been memorialised for us now by Swift's mm. Waterland, but um, 
uh, this part of Norfolk doesn't really have that kind of literary association. I mean, it has a very strong, well, I suppose it does, Arthur Ransom's, which I don't know, mm. you know, the Coot Club and those sorts of things. But not maybe contemporary. Yeah, not, not, not modern. No, no, I mean, there's Sarah Perry's um, oh, novel, yes. her yes. first novel, oh, which okay. is After the Flood, right. I think it's called. Right. And there is a kind of um, dank, uncanny mystique, I suppose mm. you could argue, to East Anglia generally. We were mm. talking about this before, which mm. comes from the aqueous nature mm. of the land. Yeah, the fact that, and the land is itself itinerant. It yeah. shouldn't be here. It's either been reclaimed or at times yeah. it disappears altogether. Yeah. Um, and also the relationship between sky and water and land, which is a kind of correlative or metaphor for mm. God. Mm. You almost you feel the sort of weight mm. of the deity on mm. you here because mm. it's flat enough that you can suddenly see how small you are, mm. at least in the context of the British Isles. Mm. You know, in this. So mm. there is, I think there is a very strong character, not easy to describe, and perhaps that's one reason why people are driven to write imaginative mm. literature, you know, mm. to get to the bottom of it. Mm. What kind of place, what kind of person does this place make, and what kind of place do the people make of it? Mm. It sort of opens up after a while. Brundle is the last of the of the sort of um, city satellite villages and towns, and then it opens out into this huge flat area, um, which is largely depopulated. But all of it was at one time part of a sea, mm. and I, I think that's um, well. It's interesting whether one has a memory of that whether the landscape has a memory of it, but certainly the sea extended all the way to Norwich. This was an, an inland sea, or a certainly tidal. And, and in, where I am at Claxton, on the south side of the Yale, um, you, you have a feeling when you rise off the flats up onto the bits where the village is, that you're kind of on a beach. And our garden is typically very sandy. It has a lot of very sandy soil. So it has some vestiges of its of its sea nature but um, uh, yeah I think it's interesting to recall as you say that we're on borrowed land land that's newly made. If you think about the fact that there used to be a land bridge here called Doggerland which only disappeared 7,500 years ago apparently that's relatively recent it's I do get a sense of this part of England actually reaching out to another reality to another entity. landscapes are resistant to our sense of the past but, 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 but of course what we know is that it has as it were a strong human past which is that the Romans started to embank these areas that we're in now and were part of a process of reclamation so the landscape we know is historically deep in a sense if you think of 2,000 years um, but because it's flat, it sort of resists our imaginative engagement. We don't sort of think of it as, as old. You know, if you go to the Lake District or, or the mountains or hills or anywhere where there's a relief, mm. you're instantly usually confronted with rock. I mean, that's one of the things that's absent from these flat lands. Um, but they are, in a way, as old as the surface of any other part of the UK. I just find it um, paradoxical, as you say, it's a bit like the fact that um, on the one hand this is both the connective tissue to Europe, mm. it was part of the way in which we were linked up to 
to Europe, but also we're right on the edge. I mean, there is nowhere in Britain further east than, than where we're going to. And, no. and, and north of there is Wrangell Island in the Arctic yeah. Sea, you know. So, I mean, this is an edge, isn't it? And, and like edges, um, it feels uh, uh, unpopulated. It has small towns and there is a biggest stretch of unrelieved grassland in, in England. Britain's largest lowland um, grazing marsh is, is, is the one we're about to cross. Um, I mean, I was interested in, and, and you perhaps don't know him, I was interested in this writer, um, Arthur Patterson. I think he's a, an important writer, but, but he's very unknown nationally. He's entirely a regional writer. One of the things that he did brilliantly, which is actually very difficult to do, was to capture the East Anglian accent, which would have been incredibly rich and almost like another language in those days. Mm. And do you hear it anymore, do you think? Yeah, I think you do. But remnants. I think one of the fantastic aspects of Patterson's achievement is to capture this parochialism. But, but you know, other landscapes have been nationalised. We think of Hardy's um, mm. uh, Heathlands and D.H. Lawrence's Derbyshire and... Mm. Um, yeah. They've and been consecrated in the literature in a yes, way which East Anglia hasn't quite... But it, particularly, particularly this part of East Anglia, mm. that it feels, you know, one of the problems it has is it hasn't, it hasn't been claimed as part of, you know, maybe that's part of its, um, its impact, that it's somehow resistant to being incorporated into the mainstream. It is on the edge. Mm. Why isn't he better known? Well, that's interesting. I think it's because it's seen as a kind of um, regional... The accent that he privileges is often very difficult, very dense for people from outside of East Anglia to grasp. He, he in, a, in a sense, his achievement in capturing the, the dialect makes him more resistant to, to national appropriation because people can't fathom the, the, almost what, the, what people are saying and, and find it difficult to wade through this, this really beautifully evoked um, patois that he that he used in his in two of the books. One is called um, uh, Wildfowlers and Poachers, and the other one is called Man and Nature on Tidal Waters. I think two books he wrote. But I absolutely love it. And I was just interested in in if we incorporated it into the mainstream. If we had a Graham Swift type uh, novel that made it central to people's imaginative experience of England whether it would lose something. Well, I think it's, I was just thinking Here we that... Here we're starting to see it, by the way. Ah, oh, good, here we go. I think it could possibly be the defensive strategy of all places which don't want to be known for some mm. reason. And they also, perhaps, they have been marginal. They have mm. been marginalized. Mm. The metropolis is a very long way away, mm. even now, even mm. today, with mm. you know 21st century infrastructure. Which, here's, sorry, <coughs> yeah, yeah, it's okay. here's, here's the Eagle Strait which is both one of the straightest roads, but also is Haldergate Flats, yeah. which really is an extraordinary flat. Yes, it is. It's pretty convincingly flat. And oddly, you know, 
when I was at Blakeney last weekend, uh, I, was, I was staying in the house of somebody who knows Africa, and he looks out onto the marshes, and he said, you know, in the right light, this could be Kenya. And I said, yes, actually, yes, it's really, really weird. That, that needs some papyrus, which he doesn't have, that we don't have here. But um, well. as you know, I know, we soon will. <laughs> I know African landscapes probably better at the moment than any European landscape. And um, I thought, yeah, so there's a mutability about yeah. this place, yeah, which yeah. is really unusual, because yes. a lot of England looks convincingly like England. You know, yes, it couldn't absolutely. be anywhere no, else. That's right. <clears throat> and I think one of the interesting things is people have an idea of African places as being, you know, precipitous or uh, dramatic, but they're often very flat, mm. very flat. They look exactly like this, like, oh, exactly like this. <laughs> and, and also the vegetation. I mean, one of the great things about coming on the train is, is, to, is to see it from up high. Mm. And you get yeah. a sense of it being a kind of ocean of land, mm. or a sea of land anyway, mm -hmm. not an ocean. An inland sea. An inland sea, yes. that's right, yes. And a land sea as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. You know, because these, these areas were embanked slowly reclaimed from the Gariensis, I think it was an, an arm of the North Sea. Yes. And, and you know, across there is Borough Castle, yes. the Roman fort. I don't know if you've ever been to No, I've not uh, been, no. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you could say that when we look at this landscape, we see everything we've been talking about, a sort of sense of illegitimacy, of, of itinerantness, but also labor, the actual work that mm -hmm. it took, you could say that also the Fens, to, to, to actually to, reclaim to this it. land, to make yeah, it. Yeah. So it's a made place, mm. which on the one hand you could say, well, therefore it's manufactured, it doesn't have the same authenticity as mm -hmm. landscape, which just is. But so much land all over the world, except really Antarctica, has really has been a it's a negotiation between man and yeah. and the landscape. Whereas this mm. is this is very much a product, an artifact in a way, isn't mm. it? To some extent. Mm. I mean one of the other interesting things that I love about the train and when I was following my rooks for one of my books, um, I had a sense, because the only thing that really moved in this landscape that I saw regularly was the train to Yarmouth. <laughs> and I used to think of it as like a, a creature, you know, yeah. but beetling into the darkness very often, or I'd hear the sound of the train, which of course the great thing about flat landscapes is sounds travel enormous distances. Ah, oh, yes, And, and you right, could yeah. see it yeah. often or hear it from miles away. So the train became a feature, a, a kind of character in my landscape.
we're traveling through both the national park in large measure here this is part of the national park uh, and these are considered some of our most biodiverse landscapes I mean particularly Braden you know if you go there at a high tide it's an absolutely fantastic uh, panorama of, of avocets and black-tailed godwits and golden plovers and widgeon and you know it's, it's a very beautiful rich landscape but you know do we have to as you say project our imaginations backwards to a time when there were hunters who made their living entirely hunter-gatherers living in these Braden areas mm. as punk gunners catching birds to sell in the market everything as well that's the other interesting thing even that word punt gunners punt gunner. how do, do you know the etymology of that where does it come well from? a punt gun was the boat that they used to get very close to the birds uh -huh. and then the discharge of over half a pound of lead when the gun went off or, or metal that does seem a bit like overkill doesn't it was it? well i mean you know a very successful punt gunner could down 500 birds with a single shot and 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 what was fascinating for me is that, you know, when I've been in Papua New Guinea, I've asked the people, what birds do you eat? And they look at me as if, you know, what are you talking about? We eat all birds. Mm. And the extraordinary thing about these Braden punt gunners is they would eat gulls and dunlin, mm. or tiny little birds, mm. and, you know, things that we that now feed off our rubbish dumps that we would never consider eating. I mean, they did that because lack of industrial farming at the time, meat availability, but also, I, I guess, the abundance of the bird life. I mean, one can only imagine, you've lived here long enough, you've probably seen it with your own eyes, but there were so much, there were so many of them. I think it must have been. <clears throat> I mean, you know, one of the other interesting stories that I always dwell upon is, is the story of egg collecting, because Yarmouth um, lapwing eggs were, were much cherished in London. <laughs> And people would walk across these these marshes at Potter Hyam, etc., that we're looking at now, and collect lapwings' eggs in their thousands and thousands, mm. tens of thousands of eggs, which they would then ship to Yarmouth, and then would be taken by train to London to be served in people's breakfast parlours in the morning. I mean, a single collector in a morning would gather more eggs than there are lapwings in this entire national park now. I mean, now we start to see the landscape close in again. It's largely wooded around mm. the railway line. It's mainly houses, etc. We've kind of passed through that. It happens very quickly, doesn't it? Happens it happens very quickly. I mean, it's, you know, coming from Canada, which is 4,000 miles across or whatever, 2,000 miles across. Yeah. Um, it happens so quickly. And, you know, the regionalism and the, the sense of... Um, identity of the, these different places changes so quickly. In a heartbeat, yeah. yes. Whereas presumably if you go to Saskatchewan or, you know, yeah. it goes on for hundreds of miles. Yeah, it does. Again, I, I, I've lost sense of that kind of scale mm. a bit mm. after living for nearly 30 years in, in Europe. Um, mm. But yes, it's true. You don't have to deal with those quicksilver changes and that makes it monotonous actually mm, but well. that monotony oddly enough it sinks into your mm. consciousness and you crave it or mm. need it mm. or mm. both that mm. and the scale of things um, but I've always found it difficult to compute yes in the, in the sense that's one way in which I don't I'm British in so many different ways but in which I'm not because I haven't grown up here is I haven't internalized that kind of mutability of yeah. the landscape here yeah. and the fact that accents Change, change as vegetation does yeah. within a second yeah <clears throat> yeah i mean the interesting thing is that um patterson wrote for the eastern daily press mm. 
and he wrote a um, he wrote a column which was just about the regional accents by an imaginary character that he invented called Melinda Twaddle. And um, it was just a kind of evocation of Norfolkness. And did he write it down yeah, yeah. phonetically? He, well, I mean, that's the extraordinary thing if you read it. I mean, it's the best that I've ever come across as a way of, 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 of understanding a dialect and the changes in dialect um, which have occurred. But I imagine that the dialect he was actually evoking was, was a Yarmouth dialect, which would have been mm. quite different to, to Norwich. And I mm. think that's interesting, you know, that England is as compressed diversity, that there is this extraordinary range of accents, etc. Whereas I imagine, you know, Saskatchewan, which is probably twice the size of the UK, or many times the size of the UK. So Mark, I was reading recently, I was really surprised to discover that the broads were not understood to be in part a man-made landscape until about the early 60s, yeah, when yeah. I think it's Dr. Joyce Lambert. Joyce Lambert, yeah. that's right. So yeah. tell me about that. Well, I mean, it was her research um, that revealed that these were medieval peat diggings. And so they were, so, so what we've come to think of as this, you know, blessed national park, the largest area of wetlands, continuous wetlands in, in England, um, and certainly in southern England, are actually an industrialised landscape, so they're now very much a recreational uh, a sense of a, of a kind of bucolic uh, idyll. I think the other interesting thing is that um, one of the things that's helped to keep them uh, free of water, because this has been a battle with water all through the generations, is that the windmills were set up, you know, from the 18th century or the 17th and 18th century to take water off the land. These areas that we've just gone through, um, there are descriptions from the 1830s or 40s of, the, of a man riding out on horseback. I think it was a guy called Arthur Young who wrote regional reports of agriculture and wrote two volume work on Norfolk. And I think he rode out onto Halvergate Marshes and his horse in June was up to its thighs in water still. These were incredibly wet places. And windmills were industrial parts of, now we see them as a kind of, um, as you say, part of the, the regional quirkiness or the, the regional identity, icons of identity for this area. But actually there were two things happening. One, they were industrial structures. And the second thing is there were people who really strongly objected to them. In the way as that, I saw it, so the way that people object yeah, to wind farms yeah, now, get, yes, speaking of windmills. Yeah, 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 isn't that interesting? Yeah, that hard to believe, isn't it? They're so quaint and picturesque in comparison to big turbines. And, and, and frame the landscape. I mean, one of the interesting things about flat places is that anything that stands above the relief becomes a kind of monument. And the mm. best example I can give, because I think it's hideously ugly, and yet simultaneously can look remarkably beautiful and statuesque and monumental is the sugar beet factory at Cantley. Mm -hmm. You see it in the morning with these plumes of smoke rising in these organic shapes and mm. it can look remarkably beautiful and monumental. Yeah, the industrial sublime. Yes, and I imagine that, as you I say... I knew you'd have a phrase for well, it. Well, I just made that up, actually. I, I haven't actually read that from a cultural geography paper or anything like that, but I'm sure somebody's used it before me. But yes, yes imagine the that, that the windmills that we see, yeah. the clapboard structures, very yeah. much looking like lowlands, low, yeah. co low countries, yeah. Holland um, yeah. structures, they, they were once that. They were once that industrial yeah. structure that yeah. people objected to. Yeah, yeah. and were busy 
little centres of activity, draining water off, mm. keep fighting back the elements, Again. battling with nature. And now we think of them as kind of, you know, almost embedded bits of natural, organic growth, don't yes. we? Yes, No, we've certainly accustomed to them. And I guess wind farms, the offshore wind farms that you see off this coast, we'll will one day be that for people. They'll be just, absolutely. you know, taken for people granted will, feature. There'll be societies to protect them. Yes. <laughs> Hard to believe. But I think, you know, again, going back to our, our conceptualization of landscape as work, this land has required mm. if, almost like a detente or yeah. a truce to be brokered between man and the sea and the land. So having worked hard for a landscape, you can kind of maybe even feel that. One could, maybe again, it's fanciful, but you could imagine that we feel that there's some very long-term relationship going on in this particular part of the world between man and the land, which has been mutually beneficial, which is quite different from being in a land which is just like geologically always just there. <clears throat> very much so, very much so. A humanised place mm. that's on a kind of... Well, actually, the interesting thing about East Anglia is that on the one hand, it is the most humanised in the sense that it's been abstracted from from seawater. Mm. It's, it's been um, slowly instated in the, in the human estate by, by drainage. And yet, on the other hand, those big flat-open horizons often contain no people whatsoever. Mm. Whereas you go to the Lake District, you know, all these great big, great big 500 million year heaps of rock that we think of as ancient and historical. And they're covered in walkers and cagoules. It has a kind of, it has an, a loneliness, an essential mm. loneliness, mm. which I guess I find mm. attractive because mm. it's honest, it. you yeah. know, it's real. Mm. And it hasn't really changed that much mm. in terms of human geography. Not, mm. you know, there haven't been floods of people coming to live in East Anglia. No. Um, and as you say, it sometimes also embodies certain quintessential elements of Englishness, like mm -hmm. the little the rivers, the waterways, mm -hmm. the wherries, the docks, the, mm -hmm. the styes and the trails that we just were looking at them now. As we mm -hmm. go, it's quite, it's quite an inviting were, landscape. Yes, but all of it utilitarian. I mean, that's the interesting thing. You know, the windmills, mm. the, the, um, the, the sort of water was the main access point for getting into this landscape and traveling about it. And, and, and we now think of it as having this this picturesque quality or this this, this air of beauty and, and, and of um, attractiveness. But I mean, it was all manufactured for a reason, mm. with, with a clear purpose, mm -hmm. it's often economic. You know? mm. It has been the strangest summer I mean, I was here in 76, which is our famous drought year, more intense than anything else I've ever experienced. So I was 16, you know, this is 42 years later. And, and, it, and it's been a, a troubling time. I mean, one of the, um, as I say, one of the, one of the great things, that, one of the comforts I've found is how resilient natural vegetation is to, our, to the drought. Whereas all our landscapes, all these fields we see, which are very burnt out and and look very desiccated. The moment nature takes over, it actually copes very well with these huge fluctuations. So these, you know, these these relatively um, well. Here we have a bit of signing, you know, with lots of old railway tracks. But this has been 
remarkably resilient to, to drying out. Yeah, no, it still look looks it. quite green. It looks very green. And there's even some reeds. And there's Braden Water on the other side. Yeah. Which is, you know, starting to look beautiful with the... Um, <laughs> A bit of local, local colour there. Balls, stoats, coots, more hens, all aboard. Thank you very much for coming to this journey. Pleasure, Mark. Let's do it again, except on an air-conditioned train, maybe <laughs> next time. Thank you.